This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Roy Anong, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. Aquariums and pond keeping are among the most popular of all hobbies in the United States and throughout the world. In fact, fish are probably the most numerous pet in people's homes and in their businesses. Keeping fish is a hobby that is thousands of years old in some cultures. In addition to housing wet pets, aquariums and ponds are also considered by many to be living works of art, from beautiful freshwater planted underwater jungles to stunning marine coral mini reefs. These living aquatic ecosystems help teach us and our children about responsible pet ownership, the balance of nature, and stewardship to our environment. In Aquarium Mania, we'll learn more about the secret and not-so-secret life of fish and other inhabitants, the basics of good aquarium keeping, the complexities of the aquarium industry, and the science and art that surround this fascinating hobby. Today we'll introduce some of these areas and get you ready for future episodes and in-depth interviews with aquatic experts. So stay tuned, we'll be right back after these messages. designerpetsweaters.com hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat beautiful couture patterns for your pets including custom-knitted formal wear casual wear yachting and even sports themed many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats top hats and a lot of sparkle each sweater includes leg loops front paw sleeves and leash opening visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready large or small we fit them all designerpetsweaters.com let's talk pets on petliferadio.com Welcome back to Aquarium Mania. Today's topic is basics of good aquarium keeping and water quality. When I was growing up in Chicago, one of my family's favorite pastimes was visiting the Shedd Aquarium in the heart of downtown. Well, you can imagine what an oasis the aquarium would be for us, especially in the dead of a windy city winter. My sisters and I would walk through the exhibit halls and stare mesmerized through glass and gallons of water at these living, floating, and breathing aquatic jewels. Fish from temperate and tropical rivers, lakes, and oceans throughout the world, and of all shapes, sizes, and colors, swam, slithered, or glided by, or attached themselves like Placostomus fish, or hid camouflaged as leaves, like leaf fish, or others like rocks. The Shedd Aquarium, like all of our great aquariums throughout the U.S., including another of my favorites, Tampa Bay's Florida Aquarium, inspires visitors to greater appreciation of our planet's aquatic resources and sparked the interest and set down the path of many future aquatic professionals. Fisheries biologists, oceanographers, aquatic animal veterinarians like myself and others, as well as innumerable professional and recreational aquarists, wet pet industry leaders, and home aquarium enthusiasts. Another favorite pastime of ours, well, probably more so of our parents, was our taking music lessons. Okay, so maybe we weren't the most talented or dedicated young musicians, but there was a major perk. 
Right by our music teacher's studio was another of our favorite places, our local aquarium store. We spent hours before and after our lessons going through each tank and each species of fish in anticipation of that one day which we hoped would be soon when we would set up our own aquariums. After many such visits, my sisters and I gathered our resources and schemed as to the best way to convince our folks to purchase our first fish. It wasn't too difficult, luckily. Hey, I was eight years old and I was ready for my first pet. We all did a little homework and one day, after lessons, met my mother at the store. We told the pet store owner we wanted some fish and she tried to be real helpful. She discussed all sorts of fish groups, tanks, filter types, biofiltration, media, gravel, stands, uh, but all we heard really was, buy more of our stuff, spend more of your money, or so that's what we thought. We pretended we already had a tank set up at home and were really only getting a few more fish and bowls to hold the fish in until they were ready to go into the main system. She looked a little perturbed, but because my mother was there, she assumed we were telling the truth. She bagged the fish we chose, some fish food, and some bowls, and we headed out the door with the fish for our other tank at home. Well, we were pretty proud of ourselves, thought we had outsmarted her. I set up my bowl of water on the cabinet in my room, dechlorinated it because I knew at least that much, and put my fish, a dwarf karami, in. It swam around happily and would live a long time in its bowl, or so I thought. And, of course, I fed it right away. Things looked good for the first few days, but then after a week or so, not so good. All our fish were dead within a few weeks. Not a happy time, but unfortunately, not an uncommon experience for many who try to put together their own aquariums without all the information. Needless to say, we were uh, pretty embarrassed, but we did finally get enough courage to go back and explain what we had done to the pet store owner. She was understanding, and we finally took most of her advice, setting up our very first 10-gallon aquarium, which we put in the hallway of our house. Most of you are probably a lot smarter than an 8-year-old, but many still have problems with their first tank. So what are some of the important lessons that I learned? I learned that I needed much more information than I thought, that I would need to be patient because setting up an aquarium doesn't stop after the first day or even after the first month. And finally, that an understanding of how the ecology of the tank worked, including water chemistry and fish and plant biology, was not difficult but was really important in order to maintain the right balance. So what are some good sources of information? Well, these need to be, of course, trustworthy and experienced. Friends or colleagues who are aquarium hobbyists can be very helpful, assuming they themselves are doing a good job. There are also many good how-to aquarium books and CDs available at the library and at your local pet store. And the internet, if approached wisely, can be a useful tool through aquarium forum groups and informational websites. However, a reputable local pet store with knowledgeable employees can be one of your greatest major resources and allies. In addition, local aquarium societies, common in many major cities, can be extremely valuable for their collective experience and mentorship. After veterinary school, I moved down to Tampa to work as the staff veterinarian for an aquarium fish production facility and wholesaler. Shortly thereafter, I joined the Tampa Bay Aquarium Society, which actually had just been organized and was an active member for many years and remain active with them till today. I learned a lot about fish in aquariums from both my job and the society and also made some great friends and very fish-headed colleagues. Another great source of information are local veterinarians that work with fish. Although some areas of the U.S. do not have as many, more and more veterinarians are becoming engaged in this area of the pet and aquaculture industry. It is a great idea to find a fish vet before you have any major problems with your fish as they can help you set up a good preventative medicine program and also 
help you figure out what's wrong if you do start to have problems. I'm active as a member of the American Veterinary Medical Association, and the AVMA is working hard to ensure more veterinarians are available to work with fish owners and that these veterinarians can be more easily located by the general public. With regard to species of fish, there are also a number of national and international associations that specialize in one or another type of fish. For example, the American Cichlid Association focuses on cichlids, including the beautiful Rift Lake African cichlids, South American cichlids, dwarf cichlids, angelfish, and discus. The Associated Koi Clubs of America is an umbrella organization that specializes in and supports the advancement of the koi industry and hobby. There are other groups including the American Killifish Association and the North American Native Fish Association which highlights native species and their aquatic habitats. Next you have to think about more tank specifics. What size and shape tank do you want? This question is intimately related to what types of fish you can keep as well as which ones will thrive t together in a given volume and tank shape. Obviously you should know how big your fish is going to become as an adult as many fish that are sold are not yet adults in the, in the stores. Where are you going to put the tank and how heavy will that tank be? Fresh water weighs about eight and a third pounds per gallon and salt water about 8.6 pounds per gallon. So 10 gallons of water will weigh about 83 to 84 pounds and a 20 gallon tank about double that or about 167 pounds. Of course this is not including all the rocks, gravel, the tank itself and other tank equipment. The next question is what type of filtration will work for your tank and fish species and aquarium management style? There are a number of different kinds of filtration equipment available, some built directly into the design of the tank. Which leads us to perhaps the most important aspect of aquarium keeping, understanding how critical water quality is to the health of your fish. If you are new to aquarium keeping, one of the most important messages for today is know your water quality. So what exactly is the deal with regard to water quality? It's not essential, but it's definitely a good idea for you to have the water you plan on using to set up your aquarium. And for most people, this is going to be tap water or well water. To have this tested either by a water testing company, your local pet store, or by a veterinarian. It is good for you to know some of your baseline parameters so you can compare these to the same values in your tank. Parameters like pH, ammonia, nitrite, hardness, alkalinity, and salinity. If you have city or municipal water, you may have to deal with chemicals like chlorine or chloramines, copper or other heavy metals, and other things. If you have well water, substances like hydrogen sulfide, iron, carbon dioxide levels, and even oxygen levels, and the potential to have higher levels of dissolved gases, something known as supersaturation, can be issues that you need to deal with. Talk this over with your expert, mentor, or advisor if you have any questions. Many municipal water sources routinely mail out some baseline information with regard to water chemistry for their specific areas. A critical part of your tank equipment then is a good set of water quality testing supplies or at least be in the loop or, or contact your pet store about testing your water regularly for you. At a minimum you should be able to test for total ammonia, nitrite, pH and temperature for freshwater systems and in addition to those four, nitrate and salt concentrations for marine systems. Ideally, you should also be able to test for some other parameters, including alkalinity and hardness. And if you have more complex systems or plan to build a, an aquatic water garden, ability to measure oxygen would also be nice. However, many of the uh, kits or meters needed are a little more expensive, so at, at least work with a veterinarian or someone who has the ability to do that. 
Okay, I just mentioned a huge list of tests, so let's go back to the basic four parameters. Ammonia, nitrite, pH, and temperature. And we'll start with a major killer of fish, especially in uh, tanks that are just starting up, which is ammonia. What is ammonia and where does it come from? Ammonia is a major breakdown product of proteins in food after this food has been digested and processed by the body. Because ammonia is so toxic, it has to be processed into a less harmful form by each animal's body or released as soon as possible into the environment or both. In people, dogs, cats, and other mammals, this ammonia must be converted into urea first, which is then released in our watery urine. In birds and reptiles, in order to save water, this ammonia is made into uric acid, the less watery but more chunky white presence that birds and reptiles like to leave you. However, because fish live in water and ammonia dissolves in water, they can get rid of it much more easily and directly. So ultimately, most of the ammonia in a tank is coming originally from food you fed that has been consumed by your fish. Once they have eaten it, their bodies will break it down into component parts and release ammonia. This ammonia travels through their blood and for many fish will be released through their gills. That's why we like to say that fish pee through their gills and that, that's a pretty accurate statement. Another important fact is that ammonia will be present in two different forms in the water. An ionized or charged form and an unionized or neutral form. The unionized or neutral form is much more toxic and will increase in proportion to the charged ammonia form when your pH and or your temperature increase. So we know ammonia is toxic to the fish. Unfortunately, it is very toxic at even low concentrations in the water and therefore must be removed somehow before it reaches critical levels. The most efficient way to do this is by having an established biofilter in your system. So what is a biofilter? One of the major goals for anyone setting up their aquarium is to make sure that two major groups of bacteria known as nitrifiers are in great enough quantity in their tank and these are going to be normally concentrated in the biological filtration portion of their tank to break the ammonia down and thereby remove it from the system. This whole process also occurs in natural water bodies. One group of bacteria breaks this ammonia down to another compound called nitrite. Unfortunately, nitrite is still toxic. Luckily, another group of bacteria in seasoned or established tanks will break this nitrite down into nitrate. Nitrate is much less toxic for most fish and normally not a major problem for many species, but can be a problem for some fish and vertebrates. Nitrate levels are normally reduced by water changes or if live plants are present, they will be used as a food source by them. There are many bad things that ammonia nitrite can and will do to your fish. Ammonia can damage many different tissues and organs, including the gills, and can affect your fish's brain. Nitrite will act to block the part of your fish's red blood cells that would normally hold oxygen. If concentrations are high enough, the fish's blood and gills will look a muddy brown, and that is why the disease caused by nitrite toxicity is also known as brown blood disease. But this brown appearance may not always be seen, and just because the blood or gills still look red doesn't mean they aren't having problems with nitrite. pH and temperature are important because many fish will have very preferred and sometimes relatively small ranges for these. In addition, even if within these preferred ranges, pH and temperature changes that are relatively abrupt will stress the fish and may lead to disease. Also, as we described earlier, the higher your pH and temperature, the greater proportion of ammonia will be in the toxic, unionized form. So, it may take six to eight weeks, even longer sometimes, once the fish have been introduced for your tank's biofilter bacteria to be in the right balance. 
So regular water testing of ammonia and nitrite at a minimum is recommended, um, at least daily or a couple times a week while your tank is first cycling. You should see an increase in the ammonia concentrations, hopefully not too high, or you may have to do some water changes, at which point the ammonia should start to drop, and then an increase in the nitrite levels, and then after the nitrite levels drop, hopefully your bacterial concentrations will be in balance with the, the fish in the tank. It's always a good idea to get a few fish at a time, not too many at once, to help get that biofilter going steadily and slowly. Some people will set up their aquarium and get their biofilter started by feeding very low doses of household ammonia before they've put fish in, of course, and make sure that they're using ammonia that has no chemical additives. If you decide you want to try to do this, be sure to work with your mentor, pet store, or your veterinarian because if you use too much ammonia in the tank, again, even prior to adding fish, this may actually slow down the development of the bacteria in your biofilter. Bottom line, do your homework and get some expert advice before you get started. We'll be right back right after these messages and talk a little bit more about aquariums and aquarium fish. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Well, we're back and talking more about the aquarium industry and some of my favorite fish. When I was new to the hobby, I was a bit overwhelmed by all the different species of fish that were available at the local pet store. I knew very little about most of them. Where in the world do they all come from? What sort of water quality requirements do they have and which fish could I keep together? What would I need to feed them? How would you tell a male from a female apart? And how do they breed? Luckily, my job, the Aquarium Society, and my own reading and research helped me to figure out the answers to some of these questions. But one of the great things about this hobby is the incredible variety. A friend and colleague of mine compared aquariums and ornamental fish to stamp collecting. The continued variety keeps the interest of many, including myself, in the hobby. You can never have or see all the fish because new species or new varieties are continuously entering the hobby. So where do they all come from? Freshwater and marine fish and invertebrates in the hobby come from both wild collection and from aquaculture. Wild-caught freshwater fish come primarily from South America, Southeast Asia, and Africa. Many of the more unusual as well as the difficult to spawn species are collected from the wild. Although there are many, some of the species in this group include the gold nugget Placostomus, a beautiful small gold-spotted armored catfish with gold trim on its fins, the silvery Pictus catfish, 
and the small, thin, and appropriately named silver hatchetfish, which likes to hang out at the surface of the water. Another very popular favorite is the cardinal tetra, a small, brightly colored red and blue fish, which is most vibrant when kept together in a school, and which is one of the species exported in the greatest numbers. Wild-caught Southeast Asian species include the spiny eels, which inhabit rivers and include the beautiful fire eels, which have bright red stripes and markings, and brackish water archerfish, named for their famous ability to spit water at their intended targets, usually insects, from overhanging branches. One of our indoor ponds at the lab used to house a number of archerfish, and it was pretty fun to watch people walking into the lab getting spit upon by these fish. Wild-caught African species include the beautiful freshwater butterfly fish, a species with large pectoral fins that, fins that are found on the side of its body, and large pelvic and caudal or tail fins. African butterfly fish like to hang out at the surface and have the ability also to leap out of the water to escape or to catch insects. Another of my favorite fish is the strangely shaped elephant nose fish, which is also more popular among more advanced hobbyists. A member of the Mormyrid family, this fish has a bizarre kind of flattened and elongate shape with an elongate snout that looks like the trunk of an elephant, hence its name as elephant nose. Mormyrids, like the elephant nose fish, discharge very weak electrical currents that they use for both hunting and for breeding. Wild capture fisheries support the local economies of many developing countries. Industry, research, researchers, and regulators in these countries understand that continued sustainability of collection will help guarantee flow of money to these people and will also help ensure that the local aquatic environments are maintained. Most marine species are well caught, including many of the marine angelfish, marine butterflyfish, tangs, and puffers. By contrast, most of the common popular freshwater species are raised on fish farms in the United States and in other parts of the world. Although relatively few species of marine fish are being cultured, there is greater interest in ornamental marine fish aquaculture to complement and to enhance sustainability of the marine portion of the hobby. This should lead to more species being cultured on farms in the future. According to the Census of Aquaculture, a study which was completed by the U.S. Department of Agriculture in 2005, with about 358 U.S. ornamental fish producers reporting, the farm gate value for the United States production of ornamental fish was valued at about $51.3 million, with the production of fish in Florida accounting for about $33.2 million of this. Farm gate value is the amount of money that the fish farmers get when the fish leave their farms. Now, in many cases, this is a relatively small cost, but this cost is usually multiplied by a factor of 5 to 15 or more by the time the fish gets to the store. So how many species are actually in production? The exact number of farmed aquarium species is really difficult to determine because of how rapidly the demand will change in the hobby for specific species on a month-to-month -month and season-to-season -season basis, and also because of the many other countries in addition to the U.S. that are also breeding different aquarium fish. The industry produces hundreds of species of freshwater and marine aquarium fish from numerous families and orders. Major freshwater species produced include the live-bearing guppies, swordtails, platies, and mollies the well-known koi and goldfish, real common in ornamental ponds, and related tropical species including barbs, freshwater sharks, and danios. Members of the tetra family, members of the catfish group including Placostomus and Corydoras catfish, members of the labyrinth fish which include the garamis and the Siamese fighting fish. 
The Siamese fighting fish are pretty well known for their long flowing and beautifully colored fins and bodies, and for the very aggressive nature of males toward other males of the same species. Although they are pretty peaceful with other species, two male Siamese fighting fish should never be kept together or they will tear each other apart. Farmers also breed cichlids, like the angelfish, discus, many African rift lake species, and dwarf varieties, as well as rainbow fishes, most of which came originally from Australia and New Guinea. Farmed marine fish include clownfishes, dottybacks, gobies like the neon goby, and seahorse as well as others. Most of the marine fish that are currently being bred have less complicated life cycles and spawning behaviors than some of their other marine relatives. Again, more freshwater fish are currently being farmed because these species have simpler life cycles and, in general, are easier to raise and to adapt to culture conditions. Even so, since one farmer normally raises many different species of fish, successful reproduction still requires that a producer understands the reproductive behavior and requirements of each species or family that he or she is working with. Some fish prefer to spawn in groups, others in pairs. Some fish scatter their eggs. Some lay them on plants or other materials. Some, like many of the garamis, build floating bubble nests, which are protected aggressively by the males. Others, like many of the African cichlids, will actually hold the eggs and developing fry in their mouths to protect them. This is known as mouth brooding. Then there are other fish, like the guppies, platys, and swordtails, that have internal fertilization. What this means is that males of these live-bearing species have modified anal fins located on their underside of their bodies which are more elongate and pointed and are actually used by these males to insert sperm packets into the females. Females will then fertilize their eggs internally and, after a certain number of days or weeks, give birth to live, developmentally advanced young. This difference in finnage is a great way to determine the sex of, of older platys and as well as some of these other live-bearing groups Male guppies have longer and wider tail fins and are generally more colorful than females. And male swordtails have a pretty distinctive sword on their tail fin, so they're easier to sex. But you can still sex all of these common live bears the same way, by the shape of that lower fin known as the anal fin. Again, in females, the fin on the underside of their body near the back end, is the, this anal fin, is more normal and fan-shaped. And in males, it will look a little bit longer and more pointed. Immature fish in these groups, however, may be a little more difficult to tell until, um, until they're a little bit older. As we mentioned, although several dozen marine fish are in production at this time, it has been more difficult to get many of the wild-caught species into production due to their more complex life cycles, nutritional requirements, as well as the added expense of use of salt water. But hopefully this trend will change. In addition to these fin fish, many different invertebrates, including shrimp, ornamental clams, and hard and soft corals, as well as live rock, rock that's used for reef aquaria, are in production on farms in the U.S. and throughout the world. So, how do fish get to your local pet store? Wild-caught fish are collected by local fishermen who bring them to collection stations and, after going through one or more middlemen, will send the fish to an exporter. The exporter will then ship them to an importer in the United States where they may exchange hands again one or more times before they end up in your local pet store. Now, farm fish coming from outside the U.S. will have fewer layers to go through, but will still go through importers and exporters. Of course, fish that are farmed in the U.S. will have a more direct route to your local pet store. 
There are a number of import-export wholesalers in the U.S. from whom the pet store chains and individual stores will purchase farmed and wild fish. These wholesalers typically will have weekly or monthly lists of availability, which lets their clients know which fish they can purchase and at what cost. Now, uh, some of the larger pet store chains have a greater say in what these costs may be and or have more direct access to the imported and farmed fish. Depending on what species are hot or what species are not will determine if a species continues to be sold at the listed price in the store. Because there are so many species to choose from, it really is important that you consider many of the factors we discussed earlier and consult with your local pet store or other more experienced fish keepers. I highly recommend again joining your local aquarium society if there is one in your area and learning more from their members combined experience as well. If you are just starting, a simple community tank with a combination of fish recommended by your local store should work fine. Common community tank species include platys, swordtails, tetras, some barbs, garamis, corridoras catfish, placostomus, danios, and resboras. Your uh, local pet store or your local export should kind of be able to tell you what groupings would be appropriate for each of these species. Make sure you understand the needs of the species you are thinking about as well as water quality and how to start up your biofilter bacteria, which is really important to break down that ammonia and nitrite that will otherwise build up in your tank. If you remember, as we discussed earlier, it may take from six to eight weeks or even longer for your tank to actually go through an entire cycle and have enough bacteria to break down that ammonia and nitrite and keep your fish healthy. Well, be sure to check out the Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio for useful links and information. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at roy at petliferadio.com. So, until next time, when we'll talk with some of the experts and get a little bit more into the aquarium hobby, check out the aquariums at your local store and ask a lot of questions. Remember, you can never have too much information, and variety is the spice of life. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for tuning in, and have a good day. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.